So amen. Well, well, praise God. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Well, good. I pray that the Lord just ministers to us this morning. I, I, I feel like I had a word for you that's going to be a word of encouragement. It's along the lines of what the children's ministry had talked about because um, God, is, he's always at work. How many of you know that? God is never sleeping on the job. He's always at work. You know, and God brought you here, every single one of you. Did, you didn't just happen to wander in here. All right? I don't believe that. I believe in divine appointment. Now, you're not predestined. I don't believe in that. I believe you have free will. But I do believe that God just, he directs the steps of the righteous and that God brought you here. He brought you here for a reason. You may be here just for a season of time. You may be here for a lifelong commitment. I hope you are, you know. You may, this may be your home, and you want to live and serve and, and, and die right here in this region and attending this church, you know. But God brought you here. Now, he brought you here to work something in you, to work something out of you. Come on. Because I've had people, and I mean, it, it's, it's discouraging to me. There's been some times that people were just in the right place for God to work something out of them and Boy, the heat got too hot, and boom, they were gone. Listen, guys, stick it out. Let God deal with what's going on here. Because God wants to work something into you. He, all of us has got some stuff he wants to get out of us, amen? Or God's going to work something through you. You know, you bring gifts and talents and abilities that God wants to use because God wants to use you. He's called you to be a minister, he said he gave to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Each and every one of you is a minister. And God has got something he's wanting to work through you, but a lot of times he's got to first work something into you or something out of you before he can work something through you. And so God's brought you here for that reason. And whatever God has brought you here for, I pray that we will do our part to fulfill God's plan for your life, amen, to fulfill his purpose and all for his glory. Now, how does God do all of that? 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in the book of Corinthians this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor are the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. That ruler of this age, you're going to see, uses that phrase a couple of times here. And he says, those rulers of this age, they're coming to nothing. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. It's the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages. This mystery that he's talking about. He established that before he ever even said, let there be light. He's established all of this. And he's done it for his glory, or for, I'm sorry, for our glory. Those words are important. But what do you mean for our glory? Listen, God wants to glorify you. It's an amazing thing what God does in you. He takes a mortal being and makes you immortal. He makes something that is corruptible and turns it into something that's incorruptible. That's miraculous. And it's a mystery. It's hidden things that God ordained before the ages, he said. 
And so he's doing that for our glory. Verse 8 says, which none of the rulers of this age, there he says it again, none of them knew this. Well, who are these rulers of this age he's talking about? We find in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And he calls it the, the wickedness, uh, 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 the wicked rulers of this age. He's talking about demonic powers. He said, for they, he said that, that none of them knew this, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9 says, but as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, the things that he's prepared for you and I. Before the world was ever created, he's prepared those things for those that love him. Verse 10 says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. You know, I've heard people say, well, eyes not seen, ears not heard. Yeah, God's revealed them to you. He's revealed them to me. He said he's revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no man knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit, which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Come on, a lot of us, we think we've got it all figured out. I've had people that's written, I've had people that's given me letters telling me all the things that I should be doing as a pastor. They got it all figured out. Listen, church. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor. When we first planted the church, they told me to give them a five-year plan for the ministry. I said, Dr. Roden, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing next week. And he looked at me and just smiled because that's what he was waiting to hear. He was wanting to see if he had some cocky little preacher that knew it all, that's got a whole five-year plan figured out, and he would look at you and like, you don't have a clue what you're doing. If I'd have given him a five-year plan, he'd have looked at me and just shook his head like, another one of those that's got it all figured out. Come on. We don't know. Church, listen, we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to depend on God for our next step, our next breath. If we can ever figure that out, there's such a release in that. There's such a peace in that. That God, I just, all I got to do is trust you. You're going to show us what to do when it's time to do it. <clears throat> and sometimes it will look like the stupidest thing you've ever heard or seen. Why? Because God, well, let's read on. He said, I'll let him say it instead of me saying it. He said, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. See, the problem is we try to understand spiritual things with this, with the natural mind. We try to compare spiritual things to natural things. And he says, no, he compares spiritual things to spiritual things. Verse 14 says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, until the Holy Spirit tells you, we're just guessing. Come on, we're just guessing. And I, I, I used to have it all figured out. I had all the answers, and then one day I realized I didn't even know what the question was. And I realized, I, God, I just got to trust you. I've just got to depend on you. I don't know how this, because we try to do it our way, and brother, I, it'll turn into the biggest disaster you've ever seen. And so you finally just have to say, all right, God, I, I, show me the next thing to do, and then the next thing. Because the natural man sees not the things of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually certain. Verse 15 says, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged of no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name, Lord, to anoint me this morning, God, as I try to deliver what I believe that you have put on my heart today. Father, I pray that it will be such a word of encouragement, Lord, that it will empower and equip the, the body of Christ, Lord, to go out, Father, in faith, just trusting you, Lord, just realizing, God, that you direct our steps, God. You direct our steps, Lord. When we just put our trust in you, you will guide us. You will direct us, Lord. And then we will go in the right direction, on the right path, in the right way, do the right things. So, Holy Spirit, we just depend upon you this morning. Speak the things that you won't spoken this morning, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. <clears throat> now, when we examine human history, throughout human history, God has done some of the things that in our mind is some of the most boneheaded, foolish things that you can imagine. Things that seem foolish to men. I'm going to back up this morning. 1 Corinthians, six times he calls the things of God as, as perceived by men foolish. Let's read a little bit more here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputers of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. For since the wisdom of God and the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But, but we preach Christ crucified. Come on. We preach Jesus Christ crucified. I'm not preaching signs and wonders. Because there are people that's taking that. It's, you got, I, I read a book. A guy said, if there's not signs and wonders in your church, you're out of the will of God. I'm like, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You're seeking signs and wonders. That's what the Jews sought after. We're not seeking after wisdom. We're preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the wisdom of God. Whether signs and wonders ever follow or not, it doesn't change what Jesus did at Calvary. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is the power of God. Don't ever, listen, don't ever, ever, ever allow yourself to get too far from the cross. He said, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, verse 24, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For we see your calling, brother, how that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame those that are wise. Throughout human history, God has done things that just seems so incredibly foolish. Let me take you on a journey through history and just show you what I'm talking about. I want you to use your imagination this morning, and instead of looking back at history, because, see, we're standing on this side of history. We know how all the things that he did, like the little cartoon we saw about uh, uh, Naaman going and dipping seven times in the Jordan. It's like, what is that supposed to do? He's like, I've got rivers in my country that's cleaner than the Jordan. I can go dip in them. Why do I have to dip in the muddy Jordan River? That sounds foolish. You know, we, we are on this side of history looking like that's going to work. Name it, just do it. But if you're on the front side of history looking at some of the things that God told us to do, you're like, God, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Let's just imagine for a minute God is not God. I'm not being sacrilegious this morning. Let's just, let's, he is just the ruler of the universe, all right? And we are his board of directors, okay? And he's going to run his plan by us to see what we think about it. And he calls the board meeting. He said, look at the earth, man. It's in a mess. At one time, I've already had to destroy the thing with a flood because their, their thoughts were continually evil all the time, and I had to destroy them. And, and then here, no time had passed. Now they're building a tower to Babel. And they've got little compartments with all different kinds of gods in that, in that tower. It was actually a shrine to the pagan gods, one of which was Allah, the moon god. And many years later, there's going to be a guy come along named Muhammad and says, we're not going to be polytheistic and worship many gods. We're going to worship just that one pagan false god called Allah. You know, and said, here I had, to just, I had to mess that up and just disperse them. And, and, and now the world is just in a mess, and I've, I've got to save my creation. Here's my plan. They're like, all right, well, what's your plan, God? He said, I'm going to call a man, and I'm going to make him the father of many nations. His children will number like the stars of heaven. They're like, yes, that'll work. A family thing. A monarchy, kings, and kings will follow kings. And yes, that's what we're going to do. He, he's going to have children as number like the stars of heaven. He's what, a thousand wives, two thousand wives. How, how many wives is he going to have, God? He's like one. One? Yeah, he's only going to have one wife. Well, she's going to have all those kids. The stars of heaven. No, she's just going to have one. We're on the front side of history, remember? We're hearing his, thought, his head idea for the first time. It's like one man 
is going to have one wife and one son, and, th and that's going to turn into the stars of heaven? That's when you call a private board meeting and say, guys, you know, <clears throat> God's been around a long time. You know, he's getting, like, really old. I think he might be a little senile. Like, God, what are you thinking? That's foolishness. Isn't it? That's foolishness. And he said, by the way, she's going to be 99, and he's going to be 100 when she has this baby. <laughs> They're like, that's it. Check his meds. That, that makes no sense. But we know that Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 tribes of Israel, one of which was Joseph, and then they wound up in Egypt. And was the sec Joseph was the second most powerful man on planet Earth, second only to Pharaoh, the most powerful empire in the world. And so now 70 people are in Israel. It's like, well, 70 is better than one, but we're still a long way from the stars in heaven. And so here they are in Egypt. And so <clears throat> four centuries pass, 430 years, and we're calling another board meeting. He's like, God. You're sending this group of people to free the world, and you can't even free them? They've been slaves for 430 years. He's like, yeah, and I'm, I, I think the time is right. The time is right. I'm going to send them back to the land of their fathers, the land that I promised Abraham. They're like, yes. Uh, uh, we're going to conquer the Egyptians. The time is right. There's more of us than there are of them. In fact, we're producing so many that Pharaoh had to throw a lot of the male babies into the sea because he's afraid that we're going to overpower them. So we're going to go in and we're going to defeat them. Who is going to be our great general that's going to lead this military conquest? Do you have somebody in mind? He's like, I've got just the guy. Who is he? He's an insecure 80-year-old shepherd with a speech impediment and a stick. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. But church, God chose the foolish things of this world to set in not those that are wise, to confound the wise. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8 said, The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with great signs and wonders. But what you will notice in human history is that God will, there'll be a great outpouring, a great victory, a great revival. Everything is good. We get real comfortable. God's blessing us, and all of a sudden, we don't need God anymore. Next thing you know, we forget God. Next thing you know, we are following another God. We're serving our flesh. We get in a bad situation, and we start crying out for God again. And him and his great mercy and his great grace sends another deliverer. Because now the children of Israel are living in the land of their fathers, the land that he's promised them, and they are surrounded by the Hittites and the Midianites and the, and the uh, Moabites, and I mean all the ites, and they're all after the Jews. Come on, because this is not a monarchy that everybody's going to like just love, the Savior of the world. No, everybody hates them to this day. People still hate the Jews, the Hebrew people, God's chosen people. 
And so they're surrounded by them, and, and, and God says, I have got to send a deliverer. And they're like, yes, finally. Who are you going to send? He said, I've got just the guy. Send an angel to that man down there in that wine press threshing wheat. They're like, God, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. And so he sends an angel, and he says, Hail Gideon, thy mighty man of valor. See, the wine press is a place where you get inside the press and you stomp out wine. But a, when you thresh wheat, you get on top of a hill. You pack the dirt down real hard. You take the wheat and you beat it off of the, off of the stalks. And then you take a donkey or an ox and you put a board behind it, what they call a tribulon, and you stand on it, and it goes round and round, and it rolls the wheat until it breaks the chaff away from the kernel. And then you take a winnowing fork, and you throw it up into the air, and the wind blows away the chaff, and the grain falls to the ground. You have to do that on a hilltop. But Gideon is hiding in a wine press trying to thresh out his meager little harvest of wheat because he is like scrat on Ice Age. Anybody know who that is? His eyes is twitching. He's like, because he's scared of his own shadow. That's why he's hiding. And Gideon shows up, hell, Gideon, thy mighty man of valor. And he's like, who said that? Because he's terrified. And in the board meeting, we're saying, God, Gideon? Have you thought about this? He is of the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh, the poorest tribe in all of Israel. Not only that, but his family is the poorest family of the poorest tribe in all of Israel. Not only that, but he is the poorest son of the poorest family of the poorest tribe in all of Israel. And he's your guy? Yes, that's my man. Foolish. It's like, God, what are you thinking? Isn't that just like God? And history is full of that. Biblical history is full of it. Look at the women that he chose. I've got to get a savior into the world. And I've got the, the, the genealogy, the men, the bloodline, and all figured out. But what about the women? I've got to have just the right women. I've I, I got to select somebody that's perfect for the Messiah. And he calls the board meeting together and said, I've got my eye on this one woman. What do you think? Well, who is she? She's a hooker from Jericho. Named Rahab. A hooker from Jericho is going to be the ancestral grandmother of the Messiah. Oh, that's a great idea, God. What else? Well, I got my own, this woman down here named Ruth. Ruth? God, in case you have forgotten, she is a Moabite. Moab. Remember? Lot, nephews to Abraham, they wanted to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story? He's like, yeah, I remember that. So Sodom and Gomorrah that was vexed with homosexuality and every sexual perversion you could think of so bad that we had to destroy it with fire and brimstone. 
Then Lot comes out with just his wife and two daughters, and his wife is lusting for the life she's left behind and turn around, and we had to zap her and turn her into a pillow of salt. That Lot, yeah. And then his two daughters says, we don't have a man to come into us, so we will get our father drunk and go unto him. And one of them had a son named Ammon, father of the Ammonites. Remember that? And the other one had a son named Moab, father of the Moabites. And that is one of his daughters. And you want her an incestual offspring of Lot's daughter to the ancestral grandmother of the Messiah? He says, yes, isn't it a great idea? And we're like, God, what are you thinking? Don't we think like that? It was like, that would not be our plan. <laughs> but God is so amazing. Then he gets the seed of the Messiah in Mary. And here she is in a little town in northern Israel up here called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And they say, well, there's a problem with that, God. The Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. She's way to the north. How are you going to get her from there to here? She's almost ready to drop this thing. You got to do something fast. He said, I got just the thing. I'm going to use a demonic, evil, perverted, psychopath Caesar, Augustus, to get this done. <laughs> what? And a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to tax those. And so every man had to go back to the origin of his birth, the city of his birth, to be censored. And so Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. Isn't God amazing how he gets things done? Isn't it amazing how he gets things done? Just consider the people that he chose to be his disciples. A bunch of dumb fishermen. They couldn't read. They were uneducated. They hadn't been taught anything by the sages, by the by the rabbis, and he calls them, and he calls one guy who was a zealot. He wants to overthrow the government. He's like a domestic terrorist named Simon the zealot. He hates the government. He hates everything about the government, and he puts him in a same group with Matthew, the tax collector, the very icon of the thing that he hates, and he's carrying a sword and there's Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor to his own people. And Jesus picks them to pal around together. It's like, what are you thinking? And then Thomas is the guy who's like, you got to show me before I believe it. None of these people were qualified. But something I also learned a long time ago, God doesn't call those that are qualified. He qualifies those that he calls. Amen? Don't ever think, well, I can't do anything for God. I am not qualified. You are just the person God would use. Amen? Look at how he gets his message out. I've got to get the message of Jesus Christ, what he's done, the finished work at Calvary to the world. Who am I going to send? My disciples are all huddled up over here in Jerusalem. They're not doing what I told them to do. I need a blazing evangelist that's going to set the world on fire, that's going to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. Who will I pick? There's my guy. He's standing there holding the coat while they stone Stephen to death. And that's your guy? Look what he's doing, God. He's endorsing that. In fact, he's going around and arresting the very people that you're talking about that needs to be doing this job. Saul of Tarshish, 
Oh, I get it. Finally, you've got a bunch of dumb fishermen. You're going to get somebody finally that's qualified because he was taught in the school of Gamaliel. This guy, he was fluent in multiple languages. He could speak many languages. He had studied the Scriptures. He could quote the Torah like from memory. This guy was brilliant. Oh, I get it. That's why you're picking him. But the Apostle Paul started out by saying, I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Then he said, I am the least of all the apostles. And finally he said, I am the chief among sinners. And finally he said, everything that I counted as gain, I now counted as loss for Jesus Christ. It's like a pile of dung. All of the accomplishments that I made, God doesn't need that. He just needs a yielded spirit that will listen to his voice. It wasn't because of his qualifications. You fast forward. The church is it's, its highest lows, mountaintops, its valleys. And the church has fallen into depravity. The priests are wicked. They're perverted. They're making all kind of laws themselves. They're teaching all kind of perverted doctrines. They're, they're prostituting the gospel. They're selling indulgence. If you want your friend to, they taught para, that everybody is in a place called purgatory. When you die, you go to purgatory. And if you want to get your family member out of purgatory, you got to give me your money. And so they're prostituting the gospel. The priests are all evil. They're taking the word of God, and they, they're the only ones that have it, and we enter what was called the dark age. You know why it's called the dark age? Because the light of the world was locked away. So who will I send? And so he finds this guy that is completely neurotic, vexed with anxiety. One day he falls down in the choir loft crying uncontrollably. His priest says, Martin, you come to confession every single day. What's the matter with you? And Martin Luther said, I fear God. I'm afraid of going to hell. He says, Martin, you're crazy. You're nuts. There's only one thing I can do with somebody as crazy as you. I'm going to make you a professor in a university. And so he sends him to Wittenberg and gives him the task of teaching the book of Romans to undergraduates. And so he translates the book of Romans out of the Latin Vulgate into the German language, and he comes across this one verse that says, the just shall live by faith, and it transforms him. And he comes out and, and, and nails the 99 Thesis on the door of the church and starts the great Protestant Reformation. This man that it can't, I mean, he is a wreck emotionally. But God uses him to turn the, church all, uh, turn the church around in the 1500s. 200 years fast forward. Church is back in the dilemma again. Gin, alcohol is vexing England and America. It was a greater plague than, than crack cocaine, than heroin, than opioids, and anything else. Drunkenness. People are just drunkards. Tell you something about drunkenness. It looses your, it, it, you lose your inhibition. 
People that get drunk, they, they, you, you take alcohol. What is that? Come on, church. Why, why don't you just drink gasoline? This body was not meant to pour alcohol in it. That's, but they're drinking gin and they're getting drunk. They're losing their inhibitions. And then what do you do? Lasciviousness, the Bible calls it. No restraints. Because people get drunk. I don't know if you've ever been drunk before. Shamefully, I can say, yes, I've been there. And you lose all your inhibitions. You do things you would never dream of doing. Because you have no restraints. It's called lasciviousness. There's no restraints. Lasciviousness leads to revelry. Revelry is what the Bible calls a party spirit. Because then you don't want to just do it yourself, man. You want to let's all get together, brother. We'll have a good time. And they make fools out of themselves. And do things you would never, ever dream of doing. Then it, 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 listen, I told you a couple of weeks ago, one sin leads to another sin that leads to a greater sin, and then it goes to debauchery. And that's where the church was at because of gin. We're having human trafficking, children. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, were is a past tense word, come on, such were some of you, but you have been washed. Why are you washed? Because if you're doing all that, you're dirty. Your spirit is dirty. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Jen was vexing the church, vexing England, vexing America. And God says, who are we going to send? And our board meeting comes together, and we're looking for somebody that's a blazing evangelist. And he sees this little guy that's five foot four inches tall that's got a squeaky little nose and voice that's just irritating. <laughs> he is obsessive, compulsive, and filled with fear. He's an Anglican priest. And this Anglican priest says, where can I go to the worst place on earth and preach? And God sends him to Savannah, Georgia to preach to the Indians. But when he gets there, he doesn't preach to the first Indian. They make him the priest of the local parish. And while he's there, he falls in love with one of the most beautiful women of one of the most wealthy families in Savannah. He proposes to her, and she rebuffs him. And so next Sunday, he just refuses to serve her communion. Show you, tell me no. Time to serve community. He just walked by her. But the problem was that is the only way you could refuse to serve a young woman communion was if you knew and could prove that she was sexually promiscuous. And by passing her by, he announced to the whole community that she is sexually promiscuous. Her father sued him for slander, and he had to escape through the swamp at night to keep from being tarred and feathered. He ran to his brother who worked for General Overthaw, and they helped him get back to England. And then when he returned, on his return, there was a great storm, and he's down in the belly of the ship, and he beats a bunch of German Christians, and God 
touches John Wesley with the power of the Holy Spirit. And John Wesley comes and we, he ushers in this little five-foot-tall, five-foot-four, squeaky, irritating-voice man ushers in the first great awakening. It was said that you could not walk through the streets of many cities without hearing hymns and songs being sung from every single house because of the preaching of John Wesley. Who would have thought that? Like, that's your guy, God. What are you thinking? A hundred years later in the 1800s, the bars are full, the churches are empty, the pastors are backslidden. Sin fills the streets in every city. And God chooses a man from upstate New York who was raised by an atheist, humanist, who would not allow a Bible in his house. He had no use for preachers. He had no use for Christians. And he's taught his sons that there is no God. He taught him that by nature, all people are good by nature. Later, this young man winds up in San Diego, and a prostitute approaches him, and he couldn't for the life of him understand what she's trying to sell him. And once he realized what she was doing, he was so overcome with shame for her that he began to weep. And then she became overcome with shame and ran away from his presence. And Charles Grandison Finney realized for the first time that men are not good by nature, but men are depraved. Eventually, he studies law. <clears throat> he's asked, because he's a great cello player, he's asked to be the, the, the music master of the, the local church. And he hears what is being taught to the young people. And because in studying law, he had to study the book of Romans, that he learned from the book of Romans that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, lest any man should boast. And he's listening to what is being taught to these young people, and he's concerned about their soul. Here's a man that's an atheist, music leader in the church, concerned about the souls of these young people. And so he confronts the pastor and says, what you're teaching them is wrong. And then one day in his office, he said, he heard the voice of God saying, but what about your soul? What about your soul? Hunter, could you come up here and sneak? What about your soul? And he said, I went out into the woods behind the church, and I knelt down beside an old log, and I witnessed the conversion of my own soul. He said, simultaneously, I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and waves of waves of liquid love poured over me in such measure that I felt that I would die if it did not stop. And as a result of that, I just need Hunter, Brittany. I'm not, not the worship team right now. Um, and he said that I would have died if it wouldn't have stopped. And then he said, then he said he went back in his office. He's getting ready to present a case, and he, he closes the books up, and he gave the, the case to another man, and he told the guy, he said, somebody else is going to be handling your case. The guy went off. He said, henceforth, I shall try the case for Christ. And Charles Grandison Finney, I believe, was by far the greatest evangelist that's ever preached on American soil. He brought in what was known as the Second Great Awakening. In the post-Civil War, we had the same thing. There was a Unitarian Universalist that raised his family. This boy was raised in a Universalist Unitarian that taught you don't even need to be saved because everybody's going to be saved. But Dwight L. Moody, a, a shoe salesman in the back room of Chicago, 
was touched by the power of God and learned about salvation through Jesus Christ. And it was said that he would not go to bed at night until he had won somebody to the Lord. 1920s were in the same place. God needed somebody to save his people. And who does he choose? A back-a-chewing, spitting, cussing professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday that brought revival to America. It's not just the history of people that seem foolish. What about the way that he did it? He said, for since the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Through preaching. Just think about that. What is it about preaching that can take a mortal and transform them into it, transform them instantly into something immortal. The greatest orator in politics can't transform you from a Democrat to a Republican or from a Republican to a Democrat. I don't care how well-spoken they are. They may change your mind. They may change the way you're thinking. You may reason and change sides, but nothing is transformed. Boom! By speech. What is it about preaching? Preaching is the most supernatural communication in which God allows human interaction. It's supernatural. You see, the faith of Jesus Christ that is in the soul of a believer, it causes the thoughts in your mind to involuntarily send electric waves through your body and your lungs will burst with an upward thrust pushing sound out through your mouth and sound waves goes out into the atmosphere. Then it hits two fleshly appendages on the side of your face that serves no other purpose than to hang your Ray-Bans, <laughs> jewelry, and scoop up those sound waves being emitted by somebody speaking. Then those sound waves enters the holes in the side of your head, begins to vibrate the smallest bones in the human body, and then the reverse begins. Neurotransmitters begins to exchange those sounds into thought. Thought then becomes faith, and that faith mixed with the power of the blood of Jesus Christ transforms darkness into light, and a brand new creation is made instantly. Through the foolishness of speaking. Supernatural power of speaking. To the Greeks who are wise, there has to be reason, there has to be philosophy, there has to be some purpose for all this. It's foolishness. But to those of us who are saved, it is the power of God. And how does God choose to use this power? By giving it to you and me. And that's probably the most foolish thing of all. That he would put that kind of power in my hands and in your hands. There's a, there's a, there is an Italian centurion in Caesarea. And an angel appears unto him and says, Send to Simon a tanner that lives by the sea in Joppa and inquire for one Simon Peter, and he will come and tell you what you need to know. 
Now, just stop a minute and think about that. He sent an angel? I don't know about you, but you could probably preach the gospel to me, and I may believe you, but if an angel shows up and tells me, there's a pretty good chance that I'm probably going to believe him before I believe you. Amen? Come on. So why didn't the angel just tell him? Because God didn't commission the angels to preach the gospel. He put that in the hands of human beings. You and I. Again, in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he said, I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why did he say that to the church at Corinth? When I came to you, I don't know anything. <laughs> except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Where had he just left? Paul had just left Mars Hill in Athens, Greek, where the wisest, most brightest minds in all the world gathered together to exchange philosophy and thoughts and ideas. In fact, they came together and they said, let us hear what this babbler has to say. And so he tries to meet them on their own ground and match intellect for intellect. When you read his, his, his uh, treatise to the, to the Athenians there, you think that what he is quoting is Scripture, but actually some of what he's quoting is their own Greek poetry. In him we live and move and have our being. How many of you remember hearing that? That's Greek poetry. He's using their own poetry and giving it back to them. So he's trying to match wisdom by wisdom. And some commentaries believe that Paul walked away from Athens with his tail tucked between his legs like he was a total failure because he did very little good. And so when he gets to Corinth, he says, forget that. I'm not here speaking men's wisdom anymore. I don't know anything but one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then you consider the method of salvation. How did God bring all of this about? Another thing that is so foolish. God spoke into existence the second Adam, just like he spoke into existence the first Adam. See, God said, let us make man in our own image, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now he's bringing the second Adam into existence. And through the mouths of the prophets, he spoke this prophecy and that prophecy and this prophecy and that prophecy, which was the word of God speaking into existence, Yahshua, Jesus, who will be the Christ. And he's speaking him into existence. And all of a sudden, God said, I can swear by no other. So he swore by himself. You see, he tried to give man the ability to save himself by giving him the law. But all the law did was show man that he was hopeless, that you can't keep the law. No one ever kept the law. The apostle Paul said, I didn't know what grace was but by the law. The law was the schoolmaster that brought me to grace. Why? Because with the law, if you've ever stole, you're guilty. If you've ever lied, you're guilty. If you've ever taken God's name in vain, you're guilty. And so by the law, we all know that we're guilty before God. So that didn't work. There's nothing else that I can swear by, so I swear by myself. So God took a part of himself and he placed it into the womb of a virgin. 
And that baby was born, and it lived a perfect, sinless life, his whole life. At age 30, the anointing of the Holy Spirit come upon him. When he was baptized by John, the dove appeared over his head and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was tempted by Satan. said, If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He took him on a high place, showed him the kingdoms of the earth, said, All these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. He said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, said, cast yourself off, for is it not written? Come on, Satan can quote Scripture too. Is it not written that the God gave his angels charge over thee to lift thee up, lest I dash thy foot against the stone? He said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He lived a life of sinlessness, a sinless life. Then he was arrested, falsely accused, falsely tried, and he was tortured. They blindfolded him, slapped him, said, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. They put a crown on his head and beat his head with the reeds to drive the thorns into his skull, put a robe on him and mocked him. Hell, king of the Jews, spit on him, made him carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They hung him on a tree. And while he's hanging there, God supernaturally took all the sins from Adam all the way to the time of Christ, during the present, during our time, and all the way into the future, God supernaturally took the sins of all mankind, and he put it all together, and he placed it on him. And in that instant, for the first time in all of creation, God turned his face from his own son. And we see Jesus hanging on the cross, crying that mournful cry, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And God supernaturally made him who knew no sin become sin that foolish people just like you and me could be made the righteousness of God through him. That is the most powerful, amazing thing to ever happen in history. But in the minds of wise people, it's foolishness. Then Jesus hangs there and he says, Father, unto you I commend my spirit. And he died. The songwriter says, in the midst of hell, the devil celebrated, we've destroyed the king, they cried. But then footsteps were heard. They were walking the corridors of hell as a voice rang out, a voice that rang like a bell. Then Satan trembled as he recognized him, for he's come to deliver his own. Shut and lock the gates, he cried. Don't let him ascend to his throne. But then the gates weren't shut in the face of the king just to prove God's salvation is true. And he shook hell's gates and said, lift up your eyes, for the king is coming through. Then out of the devil's prison house came a procession led by the king, shouting, now, O grave, where is thy victory? And death, where is thy sting? Then we see him back with the disciples, and the Bible says that he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. 
And for the second time in creation, God breathed into the soul of men the breath of life, and he became alive once again. He did it in the garden when he breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and he became a living soul. Man's spirit died when he sinned, but now Jesus has paid the full price for sin, and now he breathes once again into the breath of man, and man becomes a living soul. And the Bible says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God will be thoroughly furnished unto all good work. That word, God, that word inspiration in the Greek is theoneustos, and it means God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Church, when we receive this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When that voice goes out, the foolishness of preaching, and it enters your mind, and it turns to faith, and you accept that, what you've just accepted is the breath of God, and you become a living soul. Foolishness. But he chose those things to confound the wise. Throughout human history, God has done things that just seems foolish to the world. And people would look at that, standing on this side of history, looking at his plan and say, God, what are you thinking? This is what I think God was thinking. If you would roll that for me back in the back, please. Cheers. 
forget the cross. Don't ever get too far from the cross. You know, as Pentecostals, we're always looking for something new, exciting, the power of God. Church, there is nothing more powerful than that right there. So always remember that. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I'm happy all the day. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet if you would, please? I don't know where each and all, of, every one of you are today. Your walk with Christ, if you're even a Christian or not. I don't know who all is listening to me. But today, wherever you are, this, this broadcast is going around the globe. Wherever you are, God is omnipresent. That means the fullness of God is there with you 
while at the same time the fullness of God is right here with us. God is with you. His presence is there. And he is there to save your soul. If you would just let what I've said today mix with faith, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, and just commit your life to Christ, he will transform you into a brand new creation. If you've never done that, I encourage you, give your life to Christ today. Another song said, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. It was there that my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can become eternal, immortal, incorruptible beings. And that happens the day you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, this flesh will. It's dust. It'll return to dust. But one day, Jesus is coming again, and the dead in Christ will rise, and those that are alive and remain will be caught up in the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I want to be in that group. Amen. Hallelujah. How many of you know you're going to be with the Lord? Come on. Aren't you glad? Praise God. Father, we thank you this morning for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice at Calvary. You didn't have to do that, but you did that for us. You did that for me. Thank you for that. I thank you for the saving knowledge that you give through that. God, I thank you for the wisdom that you give us, not the wisdom that the world gives, but the wisdom that comes through the presence and the power and the leading and the voice of the Holy Spirit that gives us the directions that we need step by step, line upon line, precept upon precept, here just a little and there just a little. But God, you guide us. You direct us, and I thank you for that, Lord. We praise you this morning for who you are and what you are. And even though the world may look at Christianity and the things that we say and think it's just nonsense, it's foolishness, Lord, we know that the foolishness of the world, it's enmity against you. Your wisdom, God, brings to shame those who think they know so much. And God, we thank you for that this morning. I pray that the word has been an encouragement, Lord, to the body of Christ. It certainly has been an encouragement to me. Thank you, God, for, for giving me this message, Lord, for leading me through and understanding these things. Lord, help me to understand even more, God, that I can share it with the body of Christ. And hopefully it will help us all grow in you. Now, until we meet again, Father, I pray a protection, God, over every single person that is here, Lord. The enemy is roaring like a lion seeking whom he may devour, Lord. But, Father, I pray a supernatural protection over the body of Christ, God. I pray you commission your angels, Lord, to protect your people, Lord, in this very, very dark hour, Lord. There's so much going on in the world that is evil. But, God, we know that you're still in control, Lord. And when we stand on this side of history, we don't know what's going on or why. God, we are reminded of the fact that you are still in charge. You're still in control. You are still working, God, even in ways that may seem foolish to us, Lord. God, we, we look at the, what's going on in world leaders and stuff, Lord, and we question all of that. But, God, no matter how it looks, Lord, we trust you. We trust you, God. 
and we know that you're going to work all things together for those that love you. It's going to work for good. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, I pray that you would just welcome in your arms those that's returning to you today, God. Is there somebody, Lord, and they've strayed away from you, God, I pray that you just bring them back to you today, God, through this message, Lord. Wrap your arms around those that's faithfully serving you, Lord. Make them strong. Keep them strong, Lord, in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, I speak a blessing over the body of Christ, Lord, over every home that is represented here today, God. I pray that you bless their home, God. Make it a refuge, Lord, and escape from the world, God, a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome. God, strengthen today, Lord, the families. Lord, strengthen husbands and wives, Lord. Help them to just fall so deeply in love with each other, Lord, that they will grow old, God, together still loving each other as much as the day they walk the aisle and said, I do. Lord, I pray that you would just strengthen the relationship between parents and their children's siblings, one with each other, Lord. God, I pray a special prayer for those who are single today, God, that's seeking for their mate. Lord, I pray that you will bring that person into their life, Lord, that they can find someone to journey through life with. In Jesus' mighty name, and all the church said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you, church. It's been so good being with you this morning. Lord bless you.